Christ from Delancey Eden Church. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30am in the Delancey Eden Church building at Le Banks St. Samson in the Channel Island of Guernsey. To contact us or find out more information about us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk. you Lord we thank you that you are everything to us Lord that you are more than enough and Lord we just want to thank you and praise you for that today Lord we thank you for this time of communion where we can just come and remember that gift that you gave us Lord God and we thank you for that Amen Well good morning If you've got your uh, Bibles I'd like you to turn to 1 Samuel with me I've uh, I'm going to look at um, the life of David today. Last week we looked at the life of Elijah and we're just taking three weeks uh, to look at some of the men of the Bible and just to look at their lives and to learn some lessons from their lives. So I'm looking at David today and the thing is with David is that there's so much to David's life that I actually could probably stand here for a year. I'm not going to, but I probably could, um, and speak about David. So what I've tried to do is just look at a few different things of David's life to see, well, what can we actually learn from this great man of God, this guy? So, um, we're going to look, uh, first of all, just, is this working? Brilliant, it is working. Um, the first thing I want to, us to look at is about faithfulness. Faithfulness in the small things, in the ordinary things. So, I want to read from 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're just looking at verse 14 to 23. Okay, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will pray when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you'll feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messages to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul. Now David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much and David became one of his armour bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up the harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. I want us to look at that little verse there in verse 19. And Saul sent messages to Jesse and said, Send me your son David... Who is with the sheep? Okay, now we might know this story of David quite well, but let's just remind ourselves what has happened, that Samuel was told that David was going to be king. And so Samuel had gone to Jesse and said, you know, I'm going to anoint one of your sons, and it was David that was chosen to be anointed. Now we, you know, David probably didn't actually actually know exactly what was going on, probably didn't realise what he was being anointed for, but he had been chosen and Samuel had gone 
to David and anointed David. But he knew something significant had happened in his life. He knew that the Spirit of the Lord had come on him in power. He knew that his anointing had produced this, that there must be a higher reason, a higher purpose for Samuel coming to him to anoint him for something, for choosing him. He had a sense of destiny. He knew that there was something ahead for him. But where do we find him after his anointing? Well, it says to go and find David who is with the sheep. He's in the fields. He's with the sheep. He has this amazing experience where Samuel comes and anoints him and he receives the power of God and then he goes back to his place of work. He goes back to the fields to take up his role as the shepherd. He's with the sheep. Really, in comparison, something quite ordinary compared to just receiving this amazing anointing. And I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes life can seem a little bit ordinary. You know, you get up, you do the same things, you have your daily routines, you go to work. I woke up today, and you know when you have one of those mad panics when you're late, you think you're late. And I looked at the clock, and I was convinced it was Monday, and I was rushing around panicking. But it was all right, it was Sunday, so I was okay. But you know what? The daily stuff, the routines, the things we just do all the time. Sometimes we can look at life and think, it's a little bit ordinary. Should I be doing more than what I'm doing? Should I be doing more stuff? And sometimes we can feel guilty that we're not kind of like changing the universe, like Superman does or whatever. You know, we have that kind of like, should, should we be doing more? But interestingly, what we see here is that David is someone who is faithful just in the ordinary stuff of life, the ordinary things of life. He finds fulfilment in that place as as a shepherd. He finds fulfilment there doing exactly what he needs to be doing at that moment in time. Even though he's been anointed, not exactly sure what for, but we know it's going to be king, he goes back to that place of the ordinary. And that's not a bad thing. Sometimes for us to just be in our homes, to be in our jobs, to be in a place of the ordinary. David went back to looking after the sheep, but something amazing was going to happen. Something significant, something great was going to take place in his life. And it was in that place, it was in the place of just day-to-day stuff, in the place of routine, in the place of the ordinary, that we have in this verse 18, um, the fellowship that he had with God. The Lord was with him. It's in that place where he got to know God. He got to fellowship with God. It was in that place he learned how to tackle and fight against the bear, which helped him with Goliath. It was in that place of the ordinary. And in that place as well, he had an instrument that he played. We just read about it, because he played the harp, and it was that gift that he had that got him to be in Saul's presence, Saul the king because he could play the harp. It was a common musical instrument at the time. It wasn't an unusual gift. It was just a harp. But he learned how to play it, and he learned how to play it well. You know, what can we do? What have we got? What gifts have we got that we can do? Sometimes we look at the things we have, and we say, oh, it's not much, really. Anyone can do this. Anyone can do what I do. It's not much. But you know what? David played the harp, and he learned to play. He's only playing to the sheep. There wasn't really anyone else out there in the field, but he learned to do it well. You know what? I think with what we've got, what we can do, whatever it is, however small, however insignificant we think it might be, actually, 
We need to learn to do it well. We need to go for excellence for no other reason than just to do it well. I wish I, I remembered that when I was trying to learn how to play the keyboard. Got as far as merrily we roll along. I think that was it. But you know what? Sometimes we do look at our lives and we think, is this it? Is this all I've got? I've I've only got this. But let's learn to do it well. Because whatever you're doing today, your trade, whatever it is, give it your best. Just like David did. He didn't realise that this heart playing was going to lead him anywhere. But it opened up an amazing door of opportunity for him. Whatever we can do, even the smallest thing, let's be faithful with it. Faithfulness in the small things of life really do matter. Something can happen with the little we're faithful with. Something that can determine our significance. David was unaware. He didn't realise that people had been watching him with his heart playing. But it was leading him to something better. Maybe you feel today, maybe you feel that you know, no one is aware of just what you're doing. You feel like no one is aware of how much effort you're putting into something. No one is quite aware of your situation. No one is quite aware of how, just how faithful you are being right now in the small things. But it doesn't matter because God sees it. And God had seen David's faithfulness in the place of the ordinary, in the small things. And it led him into the presence of the king. Every one of us here is holding something that can open... Oh, sweetheart. <laughs> Something that can lead us into greater opportunity. David, it was the harp. There are those people, aren't there, that despise the day of the small things, the small gifts. But let us not be that type of person. Rather, let us see, us, let's see the importance of being faithful with the ordinary stuff, with the gifts that we've been given. Because look what happened to David. Maybe there's a new door of opportunity for you. Maybe there's something about to happen for you and you'll be pleased at the commitment, you'll be pleased at the loyalty, you'll be pleased at the faithfulness you've shown in those small things, in the ordinary things of life. Don't worry that people can't see it. You know, Mother Teresa said, be careful in the small things because it is in them that your strength lies. And David gained so much strength from that place of the ordinary, from the small things. Let's quickly just look at something else that we can um, learn from the life of David, that you can begin again. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 22. I know we're jumping around a little bit. This is what it says in chapter 22. David left Garth and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander, their leader. About 400 men were with him. David is on his own. He's lost his wife. He's lost his home. He's lost his job. He's lost his place in the royal palace, and he's lost his best friend, Jonathan. Now, that is a bad day. For anyone, okay? He's got nobody. And he runs to this cave, to this cave of Adullam. And suddenly what he finds in this complete, utter despair of his life with nothing, he finds people turning up. His brothers and members associated with his family had come around him. I think when it all goes wrong in your life, sometimes... You know, the last thing you want is your family coming in and your brothers looking at your state of affairs. And then, top it all off, 400 other men coming in who are also in distress, discontented and in debt. So you're there having a really bad day and then everybody else gathers around who's also having even more bad days. 
The Message Bible puts it like this. Not only that, but all who were down on their luck came around him. Losers, vagrants, misfits, all sorts. When you're feeling down, you don't want necessarily people who are even worse than you to come around you and bring you further down. But this is what had happened to David. You know, you want people in your life, don't you, that are going to be positive, going to make you feel better about your situation. But what do we see? If we carried on reading, what we would see is that David accepted those who came around him. He started to take responsibility. In verse 2, it says he became their leader, that he became commander over them. He accepted them. He embraced them. He took control of them and became responsible for them. And he started to formulate this structure with this band of 400 people who were distressed and discontented. But he wasn't going to let them be discouraged. David had every reason to stay in that cave of Adullam. He had every reason. He was on his own. He'd lost everything. But what did he do? He turned the situation around. He looked at these people and he began to rise again. He didn't let that negative situation take him lower, but he made the most of what he had. Even though these people were downhearted as well, he was tapping into that ability to turn the negative into a positive, to turn the minus into a plus. And he became their leader. He began to speak direction again into their life, give them hope. He got them to dream about winning battles. He motivated their hearts. And I believe as he spoke, their distressed people began to rise again with good, positive thoughts, thoughts of assurance, thoughts of peace, thoughts of freedom and joy. You know, whatever we are in, wherever we are, whatever we face, whether we are in the cave of Adullam, and that might be for a season, it might just be for a few days, I don't know, but we find ourselves there, don't we? We find ourselves in the cave. And you know, looking at David's life, I really think we can learn that we can begin again. We can rise again. You know, we can find ourselves in that place. But David, he made a choice in that situation. He could have been negative. He could have just stayed there, but he didn't. He chose a different attitude. And what will we choose to be today? Because I believe that we can rise again. I believe that God calls us to rise again and begin again, to look at things differently, to be positive. You know, we can let our circumstances determine us and determine our outlook, or we can let our outlook determine who we become and our rising again. It's not the end. It's not the end for whatever we're going through. It's not time to give up. It's not time to roll over and say, well, that's it. This is my lot. This is what God has given me. But David, he began again. And he went on to greatness. We can begin again. We can all find ourselves in times like this, but we can begin again. Let's look at something else quickly in the life of David, that revenge is not so sweet. Let's look at 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 to 7. I'm just going to read through this quickly. After Saul <clears throat> returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave, and the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. 
Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. You see, what's happened in this story is that Saul and, and, and David begin with this great friendship, and then it turns, and Saul's jealous of David, and he starts pursuing David and wants to kill David. He wants to end David's life. And they find themselves all in the same cave, David's with his men at the back, Saul's there, and his men are saying, David, look, this is your opportunity. This is what God was saying. That you can get rid of Saul, you can end his life right now. But David decides otherwise. I think there's a part of us all that like revenge, don't we? Is it just me? You know, there's something within us, isn't there, that like, if someone's done anything wrong, and you, you know, something happens to them, you think, oh, wow. I was driving along the other day, someone overtook me, and I don't think I'm a very slow driver most of the time, I don't think so, um, and he overtook me, I was quite upset about that, I didn't say anything, I didn't curse him or anything like that, I didn't pray a naughty prayer, but he just went, and, I, and then he got stuck behind something really slow and he was just in front of me, I had a great sense of satisfaction in my soul <laughs> at that, <laughs> but revenge is not so sweet. John Ortberg tells a story of a girl called Beth. She attended a new school when her family moved into a new home. She was desperately searching for a new friend. She says this, I had to think, who might have room for me? Who isn't taken? I had to shield myself from the hazards of rejection. Send out just enough signals, but not too many. Walking up and down the halls, I studied students at their lockers, tried on attitudes, sat front, back, middle of the bus... I strategized, adapted, hoped, without disclosing hope, that someone out there was looking to, that something about me would inspire. One can go one's whole life without a friend, and I realized that there's the possibility of perpetual loneliness. In a vast field of isolation, Beth found the pearl of great price, a friend, a best friend. Joanne was funny and bright and warm. And in the mysterious alchemy of human beings, two gawky 14-year-olds were alloyed in friendship. That year, Beth writes, the world became a different place for her. She belonged. The cafeteria was no longer a no-man's land. Someone was saving a place for her. Four years went by, birthdays, pizzas, projects, makeovers and sleepovers. And because of her friend, Beth Wright, she learned the music of that era. She learned about boys and secrets and other people's families and the fine art of passing notes in school. She told Joanne everything, as best friends do. Her senior year, Beth told Joanne her biggest secret, that she'd fallen in love. It was an impossible crush. He was a blonde-haired, back-of-the-bus, big man on campus who hardly knew Beth was alive can all identify with that, can we? No, just me. At best, he would occasionally grunt hello, still every night after school, after homework. Best would call Joanne to tell her the details, where she'd seen him, what he'd worn or said, whether or not he'd acknowledged her with a greeting. Joanne was always encouraging. Maybe he likes you, really? Beth wanted so badly to believe her friend, to think this hero might feel for her some echo of what she felt for him. Beth could not stop hoping, even though he gave her so little reason, even though he didn't seem to notice her and never said more than a grunt. She could not stop hoping, she writes, until the night Joanne showed up with him at the prom and a friendship that blossomed for four years with the only best friend she ever had was silence for 20 years. 
Maybe you know of a similar story. You know, maybe like David, the ones who you did no harm to, maybe those were the ones that hurt you. Maybe like David, you didn't stick around in order to rebuild relationship, but you moved on, you kept on moving. But you know what we remember, don't we? We remember those who betrayed us. We can remember those who harm us. For some of us, maybe those people aren't even alive anymore. We're not sure where those people are. Maybe they're close by, but they wouldn't even have a clue what you're talking about if you brought it up. But all of these things can be found in the deepest parts of our heart. And if the moment came, if we were so stirred up, it would still be possible to bring back that pain, bring back that feeling that we've had. How can it still be so painful? How can it have still such an effect on our lives? Well, it's not the work of God, is it? In the darkness, in the unnoticed, what kind of people are we? Would we have attacked if we had had been David? David could be well forgiven for killing Saul. Saul had tried to kill David three times with his spear. He'd given David a challenge in order to marry his daughter by putting him in danger with the Philistines. He'd sent men to kill him in his own home. He'd sent men to capture him when he took refuge at Samuel's school of prophets. His constant hunting down of David had brought David right into the depths of depression and loneliness. And David knew that Saul would not be content until David was dead. So David had every reason, every right to kill Saul in a way. But you know what? Not every God-given opportunity should perhaps be taken in the way that was most obvious. His band of men were like, go on Saul, this is your God-given opportunity to end this guy's life. Here's your opportunity, get even, be free to be vindicated, to get revenge. But maybe, maybe this God-given opportunity was was something less obvious. Maybe it was, here's your opportunity to get even, to be free, to be vindicated, to get revenge, and you do none of those things. Maybe that's his God-given opportunity. To have that available for him to do, but not to. Sometimes we need to process, we need to refine our ear to the word of God, to his ways and to his will and to his purposes. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. The way of the Lord is different to that. However hard it feels, however painful, however soul-destroying, it's not ours to revenge. Because look at the life of David. He didn't revenge. Look at where he went. I love this Psalm 37. Uh, he will make, God will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. The New Living puts it, He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. God's got a great way of making our justice shine out without us doing anything. We can safely leave it in the hands of God. It's our opportunity, our God-given opportunity, however painful this might be, our God-given opportunity to show grace and love when all we want to do is revenge, just like David did. And all he did was cut off the corner of Saul's robe. In Philippians 1, it says this, Paul prays that we may be able to discern what is best. What is the best thing to do in a situation When I was a child, I learned black and white, good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. 
But then I graduated in the schools of life and I now know that there is good, there is better, but then there is the best. And we are called as people of God to be the best. However difficult to discern what is best, to take up that God-given opportunity to show patience, to show love, to show grace. And finally, you've been so great at listening to me, but one last thing we can learn from David's life is this, that we are to trust in God's grace and power. Let's have a look at this in 1 Chronicles 29. David, son of Jesse, was king over all Israel. He ruled over Israel 40 years, seven in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. He died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth and honour, and his son Solomon succeeded him as king. David ended his life rich, rich in years, rich in happiness, wealth and respect. Brilliant. What a man of God. Did he deserve it? Did he deserve this? Let's take a look at David's life in a snapshot. He had a reckless edge. He killed 200 Philistine men instead of the 100 that Saul had challenged him to. And God had not even asked him to kill one Philistine. He lied. Worse than that, he got his friend Jonathan to tell the lie to his father Saul. The lie was to cover over David's absence from the king's table. When he went to see the priest, there was a catalogue of different sins. He treated the holy bread of presents as ordinary. He desired Goliath's sword, thinking the weapons of the world were far more important. He pretended to be a madman to escape. When David joined the Philistines, he showed that he was a man with faulty thoughts, faulty decisions. He was deceived and he was compromised. When he failed to get the ark back into Jerusalem on the first attempt, he became angry. He got offended with God. David's life ended rich in happiness, in wealth, in respect. Did he deserve it? He was guilty of presumption, thinking God was calling him to build a temple. He had an affair with Bathsheba. He became an adulterer, a murderer. He was full of pride. He couldn't lead his own sons properly. His pride and insecurity led him to taking a census, no longer trusting in God as the resource and provider of his life. All this stuff that happened in the life of David, and he ended his life so well, so rich, so favoured by God. He was a man after God's own heart. But for all these things that David did, he did suffer the consequences of his actions. Everything that he did wrong, life just came a little bit more difficult for him every wrong decision. But he knew this, and he wrote this in the psalm, in Psalm 103. He does not treat us, God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Isn't that brilliant? You know, whenever you see a blessed man or a blessed woman of God, don't admire them because of their achievements, but admire the grace of God in their life. This is David, who we look to as a man who was great, a man that became king, a man who had God's favour, and he'd done a lot of wrong stuff, made a lot of wrong decisions, and yet God's grace was on his life. Grace turns the bad into good. His son Solomon succeeded him as king. Whose son? His son and Bathsheba's son, the woman he'd had an affair with. Solomon was the son of the most terrible affair. 
It was a terrible effect and destruction on everyone concerned. And yet Solomon came out of that and was blessed by God. Grace makes things that, you know, should be bad and wrong, makes it look good, almost like that should have happened. It shouldn't, but it looks like that because the grace of God is so amazing. Romans 8 says, and we know that in all things, God's things, God works for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So these things, these wrong decisions, these wrong choices that we make, God can turn things around because his grace is so amazing. What's the worst thing you've ever done or planned to do? How do we recover from that? When the sin and the shame is so much that we can't sweep it under the carpet anymore. Have you lost so much that sometimes you think, well, we might as well just quit now. These are real feelings that we have. But the answer is no. Let's not quit. Because grace steps in. A grace that seems unfair, unjust. A grace that feels like pretense, like we're covering it up. Worse still, a grace that would make it look like the bad thing was worthwhile because it turned out so good. The grace and the power of God. We see it reflected in the life of David. And I thank God that it is, that uh, the grace is over my life. What lessons should we learn from David today? I think it's being faithful in the place where we are right now. That's important. It's significant. There's doors of opportunity ahead for us all. Let's learn faithfulness in the ordinary, everyday things. It's to know and be reassured that actually we can begin again, like David, wherever we find ourselves, even if it's in that cave of Adullam. Even when we think we've come to the end of ourselves, we've nothing left to give, things look hopeless, God is not finished yet with us, but we can rise again. We can choose a different attitude and a different perspective. Let's be reminded that revenge is not so sweet. However wrong we've been, however painful the attack, revenge never leads us anywhere. Allow God to justify the situation. Or maybe we need to learn today and we need to have confidence in the fact that we can trust in God's grace and God's power for all things, no matter how many mistakes we've made, how big the mess is that we've caused. God's grace rescues us, restores us, and it redeems us, and it makes us whole, undeserved, but lavished upon each and every one of us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father God, I want to thank you today for your word to our lives. Lord, I thank you for this life of David. So much in that life, but God, we've just touched a few things today. But just looking at those few things, God, it can speak into our life. Lord, I thank you that you've called us. I thank you that you've chosen us. And I thank you that you love us. And I pray that we would take these lessons today and apply them into our situations. Maybe just one thing that we can take away. But God, I thank you. I thank you that we are called to be people of faithfulness. God, that you see everything that we do. Whether people notice or not does not matter, but you see it and you can see our faithfulness in the small things. And we thank you for that. God, I pray that if there's people here today that need to just know they can rise again, that they can begin again, Lord, that they would. That we would know it's not over, but that you call us higher. God, I pray if there's people here today that just feel like they've been wronged, Lord, I just really pray that you would help us, that you would help us to be people of grace and not revenge, people that do the best. And God, I pray that we would know your grace and power in our life, that we would never walk away feeling condemned, ever walk away feeling guilty, but know that you work in our lives to make things good. 
And we worship you for that today, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Delancey Edom Church. For more podcasts, information, or to contact us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk.